Um, I want to introduce myself real quick. I'm a little bit out of my um, out of my zone. If you don't recognize my face, I have a story. I am I'm 23 years old, rapidly approaching 24. You know, which is scary and dangerous. Sure. Um, no lie, 23 years old. I actually found a gray hair the other day. I was combing my hair and I was like, "What is that?" I found it and it was a gray hair. So for those who just raised their hand, I guess I have you to blame. Um, because even though we love our job, it, it, it apparently produces gray hair even when you're 23. Um, but that's, that's the sacrifice we're willing to take. Um, we've been looking uh, this summer um, at what we have been calling the hard sayings of Jesus. And um, as you know, we've looked at a bunch of different ones and many different staff members have, have looked at them. Um, you, you have to ask the question as you look at the, you know, the titles of these sermons and the titles of these hard sayings, what's hard about them? You know, why is it hard? We're going to look tonight. Maybe you've, you've you know, got a preview of my sermon title. It's Hating Your Parents. Well, what is hard about that? And I think the conclusion that I've come to, um, you know, if you've been here at all throughout the summer, is that they call us to some things that are unnatural. They call us into action that in and of ourselves seems very unnatural. And so tonight is going to be no different than that because we are looking at something that's hard. And um, don't let my text and sermon title of Hating Your Parents fool you. Um, I promise that's not at all how I feel about my parents. Um, It just happens that we see this in the text. Um, But if you would, please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 14. We're going to look at verses 25 through 33. This has been a. I've listened to a good bit of the um, uh, of the other staff members who have done this, and it's been a great series because I think you've gotten a really good glimpse of Christ um, as the master teacher and as a master illustrator, um, and how he's just genius. How he ties things together and how he words things, how he times things, um, so that it, it, it meets people at a, at, a, at a point of need uh, and convicts. So um, the other staff has done a great job at looking at this. Um, So if you would, I'm going to read verses 25 through 33 of Luke chapter 14. We'll discuss a few things and uh, we'll get out of here. So Luke chapter 14 verse 25 says this. Now great crowds accompanied him and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me can, cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes um, with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Let me pray over that. Father God, as we've opened up the truth of your word, Lord, I pray that it changes the way that we think and it changes the way that we live. We ask these things in your name. Amen. 
I'm not sure how many of y'all have ever eaten at Texas Day Brazil. Has anyone ever eaten at Texas Day Brazil? It's downtown, a Peabody place. Um, it is hands down one of the greatest restaurants ever. Uh, it's, it's definitely my favorite in Memphis because it is an all-you-can-eat, just meat fest. Um, it's modeled after a Brazilian steakhouse, which I hear down there. I mean, it's even better. But you go into this restaurant. Uh, it's a little pricey, but, you know, you pay the fee, and you sit down, and you have this card. One side's green, one side's red. When it's on green, I mean, there's just people, you know, hitting you from every angle. Would you like this meat? Would you like this meat? You know, how do you want it cooked? And so, you know, mostly when I go in there, I keep it on green. And, you know, I find myself getting stuff that I don't even like. You know, they'll be like, leg of lamb. I'm like, sure, I hate lamb, but bring it on. You know, it's a buffet, whatever. And so it is one of my favorite restaurants. And I've eaten there, I'd say, I'd say probably four or five times. Well, in those four or five times that I've eaten there, I've, I've done it uh, two ways, basically. Um, I remember the first time I went, you know, I talked to some buddies who had been, and, you know, they invited me to go. So we were going to go that night. You know, we'd saved our money up to go. It's like 40 bucks at night or something, you know, which to a college kid at the time, that's a a huge chunk of money. Um, And so that whole day, you know, I barely ate anything. You know, I woke up and I ate like a, you know, half of a banana. You know, uh, for for lunch I ate, you know, half of a granola bar or something. I'm like, I'm just going to save up, you know, have you know, not snack around on junk and just go in and, you know, really be able to enjoy it, you know, and just be satisfied by this huge, you know, this huge meal. And so I did it, you know, I got there and I mean, I just, I tore it up. I I sinned, I admit that very much. I walked away way too full and just had eaten a ton. But if you're going to spend that kind of money, it was, you know, in my eyes, that was the right way to do it. The second time I went, um, I had that mindset, but I cheated. I woke up and I was hungry, so, you know, I ate a big bowl of cereal or something. For, for lunch, you know, I ate a kind of a big lunch. And at the time, I was working at a bank, and um, the women up there would cook stuff all the time. So they had snacks all around. And so when I'd get a little bit hungry, you know, a little bit uncomfortable, um, I would start snacking around. And so I did that the second time. I started snacking around. Well, when I got there, it was, it was a little bit of a waste because, you know, I, I was not near as hungry as I should have been to be able to enjoy something that could have been that satisfying, you know, that huge of a meal. So I kind of cheated. Basically, you know, here's what I saw. When I snacked around on junk, you know, before this huge, great meal, it ruined my appetite for something that was much greater than, than Pringles or peanuts or honey buns or whatever it was I was snacking on. I ruined my appetite for something that was much greater. Well, guys, we have this a similar scenario in our text tonight. Because we have a teaching directly from Christ that basically says the requirement and the cost of being a true disciple is to be more hungry for what God serves than anything that this world can serve. Even mother or father or sibling or spouse or even your own earthly life. We look at these things that in and of themselves are not bad things, but we see, and we're going to see in this text, how they can distract us from truly fulfilling our purpose as worshipers and disciples of the Lord. Guys, that can be a hard concept to swallow. I want to briefly look at the context of this passage and um, kind of give a little bit of background of of why it's been put here exactly where it has. Um, The text begins by saying, Now great crowds accompanied him. Basically, we're at a time where Jesus is pretty popular. Uh, the common people have been hearing about this guy who's been doing many miracles, um, who has, you know, a lot of healings, um, this, this controversial teaching. But for the most part, one of the things that was grabbing the crowd the most is this talk about establishing a kingdom. See, the common, the common people were very attracted to that. 
Because when they would hear Christ say, you know, the kingdom of God, they, they thought that was a literal kingdom in a political sense. Like Jesus was going to overthrow, you know, Pilate and Herod and, you know, taxes are going to be better and things are going to, you know, be returned to right. So they're thinking of it, you know, in a political, a literal sense. Not that Christ was sent to earth, you know, as a substitute for sins, you know, here to establish God's kingdom. Not at all. I don't know how many of y'all have ever seen the movie Forrest Gump. Um, it, it's, it's kind of an older movie. It's about a, um, a, a Vietnam veteran. Um, but one of my favorite parts of the movie is this, this old Vietnam vet decides to run all the way across the country on foot. Just decides to run. Um, and so it's, it's kind of the same scenario. He's, he's, he's starting to build up a lot of popularity because, you know, this crazy guy is wanting to run all the, way, all the way across the country. And he runs and runs and runs. And, I mean, he gets, he gets a really long distance. And finally he gets kind of the same kind of following. There's people who are, you know, want to know what this, this guy's, you know, this crazy guy's up to, and they start following him, and it's like this climactic thing. He's running, and all of a sudden, he stops. He stops dead in his tracks. You know, everyone stops back, and they're like, you know, what's he fixing to say? It's going to be mind-blowing. He's on this mission, and this is, this is going to go down in history, what he's fixing to tell us. You know, this, this ingenious man, what's he fixing to say? And he goes, I'm tired. And just quits running and walks right through him and walks off. Well, we have kind of the same thing because Jesus, you know, has, has developed this huge following and he stops to address this crowd and people are like, what's he going to say? You know, he's fixing to make things right. He's fixing to say, hey, here's when we take over. You know, we need to get troops together, all this. And he says, hate your mother and father and sibling and spouse and your own life. Then you can follow me. That's kind of a big, huh? And so we have that same type of thing. These people were not following Christ in service to him or in support of his ministry. It was to find some kind of personal gain. Guys, do we not see this all the time? You know, the, yeah, I'll do this God or this Jesus or this religion thing, you know, if it'll help me out. You know, if I'm guaranteed a pretty easy life, you know, where friends and family don't get sick or I don't lose my job or my kids grow up to be good kids, yeah, I'll do this thing. I'll give it a try. Guys, in our text tonight, we read words directly from Christ that completely confronts this model of thinking. And what he's confronted is a half-hearted attitude of being a disciple of Christ. Here's the bottom line of our text. The big idea, the big thing that we should see is this. The Christian life is one of wholehearted commitment. The Christian life is one of wholehearted commitment. That is the point of this text. That is the point of this saying, hating your parents. And it applies to us, guys, today just as much as it did directly to these people in whom Christ was was addressing. That this life is not about half-hearted loyalty. Me and and Jessica were at a Redbirds game a few months back, and I I saw one of the greatest uh, illustrations of of what it means to pledge loyalty to something. Um, We got to witness a naturalization ceremony. It's basically where where immigrants have completed um, a course you know, and they've learned the English language, they've taken a test, and they go out there and they wave their flags, you know, on the field, and they have to recite what some people are saying, and then they're, you know, they're a U.S. citizen. One thing that really caught my attention that they said is, you know, they had the, um, the MC out there, and he was saying, you know, repeat after me, you know, what I say. And he said, do you now, at this point, swear all loyalty and allegiance to the U.S. and renounce all past loyalties to, to previous kings, queens, or presidents? And, you know, they all say, you know, I do, and wave their flags or whatever. Guys, that's the Christian life. 
That's what wholehearted loyalty is. Not making up rules from, you know, these people don't come over and say, well, in my old country, you know, I didn't have to pay taxes, so I don't have to do it here. They took a vow, a commitment of loyalty. And we see the same thing. That is the Christian life. Wholehearted commitment and loyalty to our Lord. That's what this phrase, hating your parents, implies. But here's the problem. Here's where we see our sin in this text. Here's where I see my sin big time. Is We settle for temporary comfort and we ruin our appetites for seeking God. Because we settle for temporary comfort, we ruin our appetites for seeking God. You know, what we see is the fact that even things that are not bad in and of themselves, like family, for example, even that takes a back seat when it comes to a love for the Lord and His plan. You know, when we put our kids' intellectual or athletic or artistic or social development above their spiritual development, guys, we miss the mark. And so by doing that, and so many other times, we snack on things and we fill ourselves up with other things and people and temporary things that will not satisfy us. You know, one thing that uh, it can be somewhat of a challenge, you know, in junior high ministry, is, is sometimes when I teach lessons like this um, to junior high kids, um, it can sometimes be hard. You know, because they hear things like, you know, you have to hate this life uh, and, and everything in it compared to how you love God. And, and they hear that statement, and I think it strikes them as kind of harsh um, and, and, and limiting and really unattractive. Because what I see is I think that the older that people get, the more they see how fleeting this life is and how unsatisfying things in it can be. And so, you know, what I have to remind them all the time when I'm teaching this is, is this. You know, guys, this is not a message that is um, calling us to be dull and boring Christians who lock ourselves in a basement and all dress the same and speak in some code. It's the opposite. It's a message that calls us and encourages us that there's more to this life than what we limit ourselves to. And so what we see is that there's far more uh, satisfaction found in following the Lord than the temporary things that this earth has to offer. And that is the point of why this text is here. I want to look closely at two sections, just two sections uh, very quickly of this text that uh, I've broken down kind of to, to help us better understand why it's been put here and how it applies to us, uh, and then we'll be out of here. And the first thing I want to look at is this, the required cost in your own life. The required cost in your own life. If you have your Bibles, look in verse 26 with me. It says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Guys, when, we, when I was in high school, um, and I, I went to White Station High School, when I was in high school, you had to pick... Um, a club. You had to be involved in at least one club, or I think they flunked you or something. So you had to pick a club, and you know, they had science club and math club and, um, you know, Spanish club and, you know, all these different, you know, type of extracurricular things. Well, many of these clubs started, um, you know, early in the morning, some even before school. Some had a bunch of service projects, had extra, you know, homework, all this extra stuff. So naturally, you know, I chose the club that you didn't have to do anything, basically. You know, lawn chair club. Uh, I forgot what I did. But, you know, I would choose the one that I didn't have to be there early because if you know me at all, I am not a morning person whatsoever, and, and I don't think I ever will be. But um, I chose the one that, you know, started the latest, and you had to do absolutely nothing in. So what I would do is I would step back. I would look at the situation. You know, I'd weigh my options of all the different clubs, 
And I would choose the one that, that required the least effort. I would count the required cost of the different options that I had. You know, it was the one that made me feel the most comfortable. The one that, you know, really didn't require me to do anything. The one that I needed just to get me by. Guys, does that not sound like so many people that you know and I know concerning Christianity? You know, to clear their conscience, uh, they they make statements like, well, yeah, I believe in God, or, or yeah, I go to church. Okay, you believe in God, you go to church. Where's the action? Where's the action? Where's the ever-changing, um, you know, life and the commitment to growing in God's Word? You know, people almost act like they're doing God a favor by, by sitting in a church or following a list of rules or not murdering or robbing a bank. You know, they, they're doing God a favor by doing that. Guys, and they don't even see that there is a required cost at the joy and the suffering of following Jesus Christ. But not only do we see this as just getting by attitude, you know, in the non-believing world. Guys, we see it in 21st century American Christian culture all the time. It's amazing the implications that this text has to us right now where we live. Because don't even we do that at times. You know, we we base our decisions of this or that on what am I going to get out of this? And I think it goes, part, it goes back to part of this me-centered ideology that our culture has just inbred in all of us. What can I get from God? Guys, here Christ makes it very clear that there's a required cost. A required cost to truly following Him. And that cost, as He brilliantly states it here, is hating your father, mother, wife, children, brothers, and sisters. Upon first hearing that and first reading that, you might go, wait. Hating? What? That's how we faithfully follow Jesus Christ? Certainly the same teacher who several chapters ago, you know, commanded us to love our enemies isn't commanding that we now hate our earthly nearest. Guys, the concept of hating here can be translated into loving less. Loving less. Guys, Remember the context of our, of our scripture. We're talking about family in this era. That was the most important thing. You know, you didn't have, you know, the huge network of friends like we do now. And, you know, your kids didn't have the internet and, and, and text messaging. And, you know, there weren't the big company jobs and this and that. So the most important thing to these people was family. That's virtually all that they had. So Christ is addressing the most important thing in their lives and he's telling them that in comparison to how they should love the Lord, other loves, even that one, should look like hate. That's why this is a hard saying, guys. And it is. And in verse 27, it, it doesn't get any easier. It says, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Because the cross was a symbol of death. So what verse 27 basically is telling us is that true discipleship is a series of deaths. It's, it's self-denial. True discipleship, if we, we were to follow Christ on a path of self-denial, does that sound hard yet? You know, this talk of, of denying self and, and not being all about me, that doesn't really capture the spirit of, uh, of American culture. Guys, it might be hard to chew on it, but true disciples or to accept and to embrace self-denial and even suffering as a part of this life. 
You know, in Philippians chapter 3, Paul prayed, I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings. The disciples' life is not easy. C.S. Lewis brilliantly states that uh, in this quote. Listen to this. He says, The Christian way is different, Christ says. Give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I have not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. I don't want to drill the tooth or crown it or stop it, but to have it out. Hand over all the natural self, all the desires which you think innocent, as well as the ones you think wicked, the whole outfit. Because there's definitely a required cost in following the Lord. And the cost is having a hunger for Him that's more than anything or anyone else on this earth. Sound easy? Well, Jesus then tells us that that cost must be counted. So that's the second thing, the second half that we look at is counting the cost in your own life. Counting the cost in your own life. If you have your Bibles open, look in verse 28 with me. It says, For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? What a great illustration here from our Lord. Um, I know we have several builders around here that go to Grace, and um, uh, just two of them that I know. I know Billy Perry and, and Eric Tucker. And, uh, and, and I'm friends with them, you know, I like conversing with them about, you know, how they do their job. It's, I think it's fascinating um, to be able to develop land and build houses and all that. And, um, you know, so they, they, they tell me a little bit. But one thing that they don't do is go out and say, I want to build, you know, eight, nine, ten thousand square foot house. Um, I'm just going to go out there and, uh, you know, I'm going to let the subcontractors, you know, take care of all the money. Um, let me just throw it up out there and we'll see what happens. We'll see if we have the money. You know, if we do, that'd be great. If not, oh well. They don't do that. They sit down before any house is built and see, you know, what this contractor is going to cost and what that contractor is going to cost and what this is going to cost if this happens. They count every cost of what's going to happen before they go and, and develop land or build a house. And then again in the second parable, the second illustration, um, you know, it's, it's compared to, you know, we don't have the U.S. sending 500 troops over to Iraq saying 500 should be enough. You know, I don't know if they have 1,000 or 10,000 or 20. You know, I'm sure that'll do it. No. You sit down and you count the cost before any kind of action is taken. Which, one interesting point about these two, um, these two parables, these two illustrations back to back, are that they make similar but slightly different points. You see, in the first parable, um, the builder of this tower, as we see in the text, he's free to build or not as he chooses. But then in the second one, the king, he's being invaded by someone, so he's called to action. He must do something. So basically, the first parable tells us this. Sit down and think about if you can afford to follow me. Sit down and think about if you can afford to follow me. And the second tells us, sit down and think about if you can afford not to follow me. If you can afford to refuse my demands. That's the cost must be counted. 
And Jesus says this in addressing the crowd by basically saying, okay, I've listed what it requires, what your commitment level is supposed to look like. Does it sound appealing? And to this crowd, maybe not. So he says, you better stop and consider these things before you realize what it means to be a true disciple of me. Yes, this is a great example, too, of, of where we see the sufficiency of Christ. You know, Jesus doesn't take out ad space in the commercial appeal, you know, saying, please, please, anyone, you know, I, I'm, getting, I'm just getting, um, you know, so made fun of, you know, in the media, and people aren't supporting me. Please, 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 I need you. I really, really need you. Guess he wasn't addressing the crowd like this. You know, he knew that when he extended this call, you know, to follow him, that only those who had been given the free gift of faith would, would be those who truly surrendered and did follow him. Guys, I wonder how different the church today would be if it was filled with people who had truly counted the cost of discipleship. I wonder how different Gracie Van would be. If Christianity in America wasn't, wasn't viewed as a joke because people make a half-hearted claim to believe in God or go to church, but if people truly model their lives and their ministries after that of Christ, I wonder how different the church would look. Guys, I, I want to close with this. The second time I went to Texas Day, Brazil, I, I should have gone on an empty stomach, but I didn't. And I snacked around, you know, when things got a little uncomfortable, and then I was kind of hungry. I snacked around and, and, and basically ruined my appetite that was going to be, you know, for something that was going to be so much more satisfying and so much, so much greater than snacks. Well, my challenge to you is, is this. What are you snacking on? What are you filling up your plate with that you hardly have room for the ultimate satisfying meal that God offers. Verse 33 says, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. What does that mean if you're a believer? That you'll have to renounce everything that you own? You know, that you might lose everything or everyone for the sake of following Christ? It may not. But it may. The principle of this verse is, 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 would you? Are you willing? Has God brought you to that point of surrender in your life? It's an attitude more than it is an action. What Jesus tells us in this passage is hard. It is. It is a hard saying. The demand that it places on us and the required action is hard. But the implication is easy. The implication is easy for us to see. True discipleship requires all of us. You know, we sing around here a lot. We sing, um, when I survey the, the wondrous cross. And the last verse is probably my favorite. It says, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. And then the very, very last line, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Guys, that is the call of this text. That is, the, that is the cost and the requirement of true discipleship. That's hard and it's challenging. And so I pray that we leave asking that the Lord be the one to give us this attitude of surrender and to change uh, where, we, where we stand.
Let me pray for us real quick before we get out of here. Father God, as we have, Lord, been granted the privilege to open up your word and see the truth in it and how it deals with us, Lord, I pray that, um, Lord, it does change us. Lord, it convicts, Lord, your word convicts, and it calls us to a lifestyle that in ourselves is not natural. So I pray that, Lord, we would grow more and more in the knowledge of you and in your word so that you can change us and change our mindset. Lord, may we leave here after opening up this book better worshipers and more true disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask these things in your name. Amen. We ask these things in your name. Amen.